Live from Philadelphia and Los Angeles, it's 80s all over. Bonus episode in which we highlight the films of the first year's cast of SNL. And as always, on the stage, I am joined by my co-host, who has been on Saturday Night Live 17 times, Mr. Drew McWeeny. Uh, hey, how you doing? Uh, very, very good to be here. Uh, now, Drew, as the reigning champion of SNL guest hosts, what is your favorite thing about the show? I know I'm very hot and cold on Saturday Night Live. I have a lot of nostalgia, not only for my early childhood SNL, but my young adult SNL and and and, and even much more recent. Um, and it's fun to kind of chart the history of your life by different eras. You know, there was the early era that we're going to talk about that now. Then there was the Eddie Murphy, Billy Crystal. Then there was a kind of a down period, but there were still some great episodes and great cast members. Then there was the Will Ferrell and uh, Amy Poehler and that, that crew. Uh, uh, and we always skipped the, uh, the, and like, and then there were, you know, who came after that? Who, who, there was the Seth Myers. Well, and- that's the thing is there's so many eras and, I always feel like people are largely defined by when they first saw SNL. Like that tends to be the SNL. That's that you how they on. define SNL. I, I would say uh, to flip yeah. to flip your shit. Yeah, and and yeah. that's perfectly valid. The thing is, it's been around now for so long that it's an institution, and yeah, you end up bouncing off it in some way, whether you like it or not. I I have made this point before, and I. I genuinely believe it. No television show will ever have the footprint on American film that Saturday Night Live has had. And there just can't be any equivalent. There's nothing that's going to run 45 years. Well, comedy film, let's say. Uh, even so, not, no, because, you okay, Howard Shore, the very first musical director for Saturday Night Live, is also an Academy Award winner for Lord of the Rings. I mean, the... the okay, that's a fair yeah, point. The breadth I'm just of it saying, is yeah. unbelievable. There's such an insane talent pool that's gone through there over the years your breath is unbelievable. I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing something about it. But um, I feel like the the shadow it casts is almost impossible to calculate. And it's when you look at everybody who's worked on the music and the sets and the show. And it, we tend to think of the cast members as SNL. Or maybe we expand that to include the writer's room as well. But genuinely, Saturday Night Live, the fact that it has been on the air and that it works week after week, that they actually get a show up is kind of insane. And I really can't believe that they've done it as long as they have and all the people that have gone through those doors. So when you say, when you propose this topic, Saturday Night Live movies, it's a giant topic and something I've been obsessed with for years. And there's overlap with Saturday, with Second City and with, you know, there's live, and there's all these groups that kind of like, yeah, exactly. that kind of border up against Saturday Night Live. But Saturday Night Live has become sort of the institutional monolith that covers all of it. So I think it's a broad topic. And I think it's important to kind of define what you're talking about when you talk about SNL and movies. What we're going to be talking about specifically here are the first few feature films from the original cast members. And uh, that is because, as Drew pointed out, that if you were going to do official SNL movies, that is movies that were based on SNL characters, you have the Blues Brothers, then you have about 12 years of nothing. So um, uh, we wouldn't have much to talk about, although we will touch on the brilliant, amazing, epic, awesome car crash musical brilliance of the Blues Brothers. Uh, But we thought we'd just go cast member by cast member. And uh, since we love them all in very distinct ways, uh, let's start off with a great comedian, a woman who didn't uh, have 
kind of the uh, breakout film career, but has quietly worked consistently since the early 80s, and that is Lorraine Newman. She Is she the uh, most underrated cast member of the original crew? I think I, I think a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, may not understand how great Lorraine was on the show. And certainly like that documentary that came out this year, Love Gilda, has done a nice job of setting a framework for remembering how great Gilda Radner was. But Lorraine Newman was a character actor. And the great thing about her on the on the show was she vanished into characters like she really became each of the people she played. And she was not she rarely like stood front and center. And I think that the reason that hurt her was because a lot of the cast did a very good job of carving out space for themselves as stars. She just built a really good space for herself as a performer and as a utility performer. I, I think she's great and wildly underrated. And one of my very favorite sketches from that early run of shows involves her and Christopher Lee. And I think it's a beautiful piece of performance from him, from her. And really, I hope that at some point Lorraine gets some due. She deserves it. Oh, yeah. She is great on the show. Uh, we'll run through her 80s films. She had a quick uncredited bit in Woody Allen's Stardust Memories. Then she appeared as Zoe in, uh, I'm sorry, Zerelda. In Holy Moses, Drew, a film that we both adored. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, and it's funny because you could see like Holy Moses is a good example of, OK, let's pull people from all these places. We got to make sure we get some SNL people in there. And and so certainly she benefited from some of that early energy. She's the female lead there. She is the, you know. And and I and I think if she had had one or two great scripts behind her. She might have broken through on film because, again, it's all about with her giving her the right material. She's she's an actor who you've got to give it to her on the page, man. Yeah. And her only other 80s film. Now, again, she's done a lot of small parts and uh, voice work since then. But her only other 80s film is a Drew is a film that I believe Drew Diggs called Invaders from Mars. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun to see her pop up in that one. And uh, that's a really good use of um, sort of the arch kind of uh, bigger act like that movie, everything in it is kind of heightened and surreal and a little strange. And Lorraine hits that tone perfectly in that film. She fits right into what Toby was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a lot of props to Lorraine Newman always thought she was particularly funny in any kind of uh, commercial parody. Whenever she was the housewife, the long suffering housewife. And she would like cock her head and go, there's gotta be a better way. <laughs> I really loved on SNL, one of and this is a film nerd joke on film nerd jokes, but I loved her Lena Wertmuller. And the notion that she would want to do a Lena Wertmuller impression is already so film nerdy to begin with. Um, but yeah, every film nerd I know in LA knows her, and everybody says she is the coolest and loves her SNL legacy. And I love hearing that people are at peace with the time they had, not still like wrestling with what it was or what it meant. And she seems like she completely loves her place in that firmament. Yep. And she is uh, on the Mount Rushmore of SNL immortalized as one of the first, not for ready, not ready for primetime players. And uh, I would say that being uh, designated the underrated one on that crew, not, not a bad designation. So respect to uh, uh, Lorraine Newman. And also let us now transfer the equal amount of respect and love to the late, great, brilliant Gilda Radner, 
uh, uh, late wife of June Wilder, who passed away just a few years ago as well. And boy, what a, what a lovely couple they must have been to have dinner with. Are you kidding me? Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner to have dinner with them in, in like uh, 1985 or something? <gasps> oh. I, uh, I, I have mad affection for Gilda, and I, I'm glad that Love Gilda exists now. I think it is the kind of thing that you kind of sometimes have to do. You have to go back and set a context for people who weren't there when it happened, and I don't. I think if you missed Gilda the first time around, you may never get it because we've talked about this before. There's great actors who film didn't serve them very well, and you know I look at Woman in Red or Haunted Honeymoon or some of the, and I know those are written by Gene Wilder who adored her. It's it's weird though because I I don't even think he knew quite what to do with her on film. There was such a specific, brilliant energy to Gilda, and yet. Part of what I love about her is that vulnerability that she always struck me as a kid who walks into the room during Thanksgiving and just wants everybody to laugh for a few minutes. Yeah, very childlike, very vulnerable, very open. She, as a kid, she always reminded me of Lily Tomlin, only like kind of louder and, and a little bit sillier. Well, a lot sillier, actually. But I loved I, there was a lot of stuff that Gilda Radner did on the show that I didn't really get. But to me, she was the first experience I ever had with like. John Belushi, I had seen boys do that before. Gilda Radner, I think, might have been one of the very first women I ever saw on television who would do, like, go for broke for a laugh. Loud and over the top? Fine. Disgusting and, and obnoxious? Fine. Weird dances and, and risk-looking foolish? Fine. Brilliant comedian. Brilliant. Loved her on the show. Did not have, as you as you led to, uh, as you mentioned, did not transfer necessarily to film. Uh, I think we're sensing a theme here in that the late 70s and early 80s, there were not great roles for women, even if they were world-class comedians who did live comedy once a week on national television. Oh, yeah, and, and even her showcase movie, Guild Alive, feels like hit and miss. There's some good moments in it, but even there, it's like, what do you do with the energy that is Gilda? And how do you showcase her most properly? And I get the impulse, like Lauren Michaels, it was so important to him to get Yield Alive going and to, to give her that showcase that was sort of apart from the show. But at the same time, I think it was an attempt to redress what was starting to happen on the show, which was um, Dan and John in particular, and some of the guys in the writing staff had sort of moved to the center of the show and had taken the show over by force. And it's not that it was unfair. It's just that that's what their personalities were. They were, we're going to be the center of this. We're going to take the, it's going to be about us. And I think Gilda and Garrett Morris and Lorraine Newman and Jane Curtin and some of the other cast, they weren't fighters. They weren't in there to brawl for their space in things. So I love that Lauren did that for her and gave her Gilda Live and gave her a place to try and showcase that. I just wish filmmakers had picked that up and run with it. Yeah, she did some voice work in the TV film that many of us love called Animal Olympics. And then she showed up in a uh, a weird ensemble comedy that given who's behind it and in front of the camera, it should have been a whole of, hell of a lot better. Drew, what do you think happened with First Family? You know, we talked about this one, and I, I think political comedy is hard. Broad political comedy is even harder. It's super, but. super broad, and I'm not sure what the point of view is. It's made at a point where America's starting to swing super right again, and we're running from Jimmy Carter and what looks like the collapse at the end of the late 70s, and it's, I don't know who the butt of the joke is. I don't know what the target of the joke is. It all feels a little racist and a little bit 
of it, you know, dated. And First Family is almost the opposite of what I think of as SNL, where SNL was kind of pushing boundaries and was very progressive. And it was trying to sort of rip through what it saw as the bullshit of television to show you that commercials are nonsense and they're just selling you stuff and don't take TV seriously. And they were using the medium to sort of destroy the medium, whereas First Family feels reactionary and it feels like old people making jokes and it's weird watching the SNL energy harnessed by guys who I think were a generation before them and threatened by them. And that's what First Family feels like. On one hand, First Family feels very old fashioned and kind of has whiskers on it as a farce. But on the other hand, it also kind of feels like they had a sketch. Uh, they had an idea for a sketch about like, you know, political satire on SNL and it was turned down or it was too long. And she went to Buck Henry and said, you know what? Let's expand this. You know, like it just feels like an, a sketch that was expanded and not well. So let's move on to another vehicle between her and her late husband, Hanky Panky, which is not good, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that that's where they met. And I, I guess that collision was inevitable and wonderful. And um, but that's a weird one. And Sidney Poitier as a director always strikes me as a little odd when he's working in sort of the big popcorn venue, like his movies like Ghost Dad or this, man, they just, I don't get them. I don't, <laughs> I don't really get them on the script level. I don't, I don't know what it was about Hanky Panky, whether it was the Hitchcock-esque, like man who knew too much, uh, wrong guy, wrong place scenario. And I'm going to play the comic version of that. It really feels, I, I've said this about other films, but I love it. Silver Streak. It feels like it was directly inspired by Wilder's success on Silver Streak. And let's let's try and recapture some of that romantic thriller uh, vibe. And it's just very dry. Then she does some bits in It Came From Hollywood, which uh, actually she has some of the better shtick in that movie, to be fair. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a movie where you can tell that they showed up and they just went Gilda be Gilda. And thank God Gilda's so charming because, yeah, she kind of pops off the screen for the few moments she's there. And she has one of the few kind of laughs in any of the host segments of that movie. Yep. And then we move on to uh, a film we'll get to very soon on the show proper. The Woman in Red, in which uh, she is cast opposite her husband. And it's funny because I like... I really like where her subplot is going in that movie. And then they drop it and they drop it in such a sudden way that it almost feels like the studio or somebody else came in and lifted parts out because she's one of the few things in that movie that's kind of getting laughs or kind of working. The joke that she thought she was being hit on wasn't and then really retaliates. And I, I like that as a runner and certainly Radner's the right person to play it. She she starts to nail stuff down and. Like, then they just turn the tap off and she's out of the movie. Uh, weird. A weird uh, use of her. But, yeah, certainly, again, Jean trying to write for her and trying to write something that is specifically her comic voice. And I'm always interested when the filmmaker is so clearly crazy about the person he's he's writing for and directing. I, I don't remember the woman in red very much, but I will soon, obviously. And what I remember is that it's a very you know, conventional comedy. And then in the middle of it, like a shark, she kind of like skulks through it, like something different from this silly man and his midlife crisis about his wiener. And I just remember her being just a, a different vibe in that. Yeah. Movie. It's very much, it's very much a white guy worried about his wiener movie. And, uh, that's, that's a pretty good genre that I think you've, you've, uh, defined there. And yeah, it's very much one. And it's a shame because she'd be more interesting. The WGW. <laughs> The White Guy Wiener movie. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and then she gets it. She her, she had two more films uh, that we'll get to in later episodes. One is an odd ensemble with Steve Martin called Movers and Shakers, and then the other was her final collaboration with Gene Wilder, a very dire, unfunny comedy called Haunted Honeymoon. Now, f- bit of trivia about Movers and Shakers: We're about to review a movie called The Joy of Sex. When Joy of Sex was in development, there were several different versions of it. There was a National Lampoon anthology version. There was also a moment where they hired Charles Grodin to write a movie based on Joy of Sex. He flipped out trying to do it, and in a Charlie Kaufman-esque move, wrote a movie about a guy trying to adapt Joy of Sex as a film. They turned it down, and it is Movers and Shakers. That's what that is. All right. No, I'm really curious to revisit Movers and Shakers because as growing up, I was, of course, Steve Martin obsessed. So I did track it down, didn't get it, didn't get not only did I not get the context, but it's one of those things where, you know, it's not true. But they say there's no good movies about Hollywood because nobody really gets what goes on in Hollywood. So what's the target of the joke, which I don't agree with at all. There are several, several good movies about filmmaking, both serious and farcical. I'm curious to revisit Movers and Shakers now with that knowledge in my head because I just watched Joy of Sex a couple nights ago and it is atrocious. Okay, uh, so then from Gilda Radner, and I, I I look forward to visiting Love Gilda. I have not seen it yet, the documentary about her work and her life. Uh, but for anyone unfamiliar, I think that's where you start. It, it'll make the case for you. Okay, and uh, we also mentioned it's it's uh, it's kind of a shame and very telling that we have to keep referring to these people as underrated. But Jane Curtin is the Catherine O'Hara of Saturday Night Live. Would you disagree with that? I think what Jane Curtin has that, uh, and this is this is what I think Lauren did so well in that first cast, is he was trying to find people who could play everything. So he needed a little bit of everything. I think of her like a John Cleese. Like, like I think of her as she can play officious and she can play a sort of authoritative. But why, Drew, why did Jane Curtin not get, like, mom roles like the 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 melinda dillon or d wallace roles why did she not get offered those roles she, i don't know and I'm, i mean kate nally i guess she was busy on kate nally back well then, kate nally was a good game and, and i it watched was on- kate nally solely solely because of jane Curtin. i had no interest as a 14 year old boy about a sitcom about two moms living together with their families i only watched it because i had a crush and i thought jane Curtin was hilarious I watched it for the same reason for Jane Curtin, but I stayed because I had crushes on all the teenage girls because they were exactly my age. So, yeah, I was I was that was the 80s. I had a crush on every girl on television. That was that was that period. OK, where- OK. No, no. I now I remember Kate Nelly had a blonde girl, a brunette girl, a little bit older and then a little boy. <laughs> but yeah, yes. Uh, I like Jane Curtin a lot, and I lo- I like just the other day when I watched uh, "Can You Ever Forgive Me," the uh, the Melissa McCarthy film that's out right now. Uh, Jane Curtin shows up in that as her agent, and she's delightful, and it is so nice to see her. What a weird! I mean, like out of nowhere, but it's great. I know we're only but we're here to cover the '80s, but she's popped up, and I think I think it's as simple as this. I think Melissa McCarthy is her fan because she was in the Heat. And, and, uh, well, uh, uh, spy who dumped me. Uh, I, I think that Melissa McCarthy just went, uh, I grew up in love with Jane Curtin. Can we give her this job? And they went, yeah, well, that's, we'll call that's, it. <laughs> and that's one of the things when you talk about the long shadow of Saturday Night Live, that's what I'm talking about is these people who now have grown up on it, who get to work when I, this is why I don't understand why anybody was mad at Paul Feig ever. 
Look, he made a different Ghostbusters, yes. But are you going to argue with me that Paul Feig was anything less than respectful to the point of holy reverence to the original because of who it was and when it came out and the influence it must have had on the actual DNA comedy rhythms in his bones? We learned at the feet of these people. I'm looking at it like just a, a, a grassroots indie filmmaker and you somebody gives you the money to make your indie comedy and they say, okay, for the mom or grandmom, we have these four actors and one of them is Jane Curtin. I'm like, wait a minute. You're telling me that I can cast Jane C- Curtin in a film that I'm producing? <laughs> like, I wonder sometimes I mean, like, if people are as reverent as they should. I, and this is, maybe it's because it's been my obsession my whole life. Like I have been obsessed from the moment I don't know what your first exposure to SNL was. I don't know that everybody remembers the exact thing they saw, but I do. Like, I remember the joke. I remember what was on the television the first time I, and I I was fascinated from moment one. And it was Dan Aykroyd as Julia Child cutting his finger off. And the, that moment and watching my parents lose their minds at what they were watching, I had to decode it. I had to figure it out. And SNL has been an obsession since then. And I think there's always been the sense that it was on late at night, so it was a little bit forbidden. And there was something about it. You had to get old enough that you could actually stay up for SNL. And I remember clear as day, and I guarantee you do as well, from like 16 and under, Half the jokes went right over your head and you're like, I didn't get that political reference. I didn't get that sexual reference. I didn't get that marital reference. But it doesn't matter because in a couple of minutes, Julia Child's going to cut her thumb off or I'll see Mr. Bill or there'll be something, a commercial, you know, a commercial parody that I do understand. And it was that kind of mixed uh, salad bowl that made it so fun for kids, I think, that was kind of unique. You know, we've talked about how ephemera plays a part in the things that you end up loving and why you end up loving them. Um, There was a book that they put out in the late 70s for Saturday Night Live, which was a big, green, oversized trade paperback just called Saturday Night Live. And it looked like it was written on tape and taped to the front of the book. And it was script. It was just script pages from their best sketches. And it was also done like a scrapbook where there were photos and there were behind the scenes stories and there were things like that. But it was mainly script pages. So it was all their biggest sketches. And then there were notes on how it changed between when they wrote it, when it went on the air and what some of the jokes meant. That was hugely influential to me because it had things that helped you understand Like, I didn't know who General Francisco Franco was, and there was a thing in there about that, and I didn't know who the writers were, and it really put them in a spotlight. Monty Python would do the same thing, where I would hear a Monty Python sketch 20,000 times, and they would mention a certain philosopher, and then eight years, 12 years later, I'd hear about that philosopher's name and go, up, context, I know of that philosopher because of Monty Python. I don't know anything about that philosopher, but now I have context. Got it. You know, that's always And I think because that book was so foundational, that cast became foundational because it treated them with huge reverence. It treated them all as what they were, which was ferociously talented people who had just changed the face of TV comedy. Yeah. Uh, So back to Jane Curtin real quick. She did not have much output, but this has a happy ending. Uh, In the 80s, we covered one film, kind of a limp social comedy or social issue comedy called How to Beat the High Cost of Living, uh, in which she was definitely a highlight. And then she was in a 1987 film we'll get to called O.C. and Stiggs. I'm looking forward to talking about that one. And you would think, oh, that's a shame. She kind of failed, uh, faded into obscurity. That's a shame for such a, fun, a great comedian. Nope. Around uh, 2006-ish, 
She was in Shaggy Dog. Then she was cast in I Love You, Man. Then I don't know how she does it. The Heat, The Spy Who Dumped Me, and Can You Ever Forgive Me? The punchline is Hollywood had no real use for Jane Curtin for, for a long time. A lot of TV work, not much movie work. And now in the last several years, she's back in the spotlight. So an entire generation will be like, even if they don't know SNL, they'll know Jane Curtin. All right. Let us move on to Garrett Morris, an actor that I I always loved. Now, I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for this guy to be. Well, let's just say it. You know, he's on SNL. He's the black guy. There was one black guy. And obviously the man is drop dead hilarious. Uh, But I can only imagine like like you had uh, referred to how it was kind of all the white guys who were all kind of jockeying for the star position. Whereas these three brilliant women and Garrett Morris were kind of maybe not throwing scraps, but were definitely more being being relegated to side players. Well, here's the thing, man. If you read Saturday Night, a backstage history of Saturday Night Live, in that they talk a lot about how unhappy Garrett Morris was on the show. And when I was younger and I read that book for the first time, I didn't get it. And I here's how privilege and time and evolution and listening to people changes you. When I read that book in the mid-80s when it came out, my thought was, you're on Saturday Night Live. What are you crying about? What are you upset about? You're on Saturday Night Live. You were there. You got to be on Saturday Night Live at the beginning. You read about Garrett Morris's career. This guy, by the mid-60s, this guy had, he was a singer, and he was he was a terrific musical performer, and he worked in gospel, and he worked in jazz, and he worked in film and on Broadway, and by the mid-60s, he had a full career already. He had already done so much more than most of the people that came to SNL where they put him in a dress, you know, and they and they used him the way black guys were typically used in white comedy, which was to reduce their power, to make them lesser, and to make them the butt of the joke. It had to hurt. It really did. Now I read that book, and my heart breaks for Garrett Morris because I know how voluminously talented he was and how much more he had to offer than they ever used. Well, I I have not revisited the first several seasons in a long time, but scrolling through his Wikipedia page, I am reminded that he did a shitload of impersonations. So while I'm sure you're right that a lot of his, you know, stuff was second banana stuff, uh, either somebody on that producing staff saw his talent or finally listened to well, him. Well, he fought. He fought hard. And that's the thing is he he came over and over. Before SNL even existed, he was in Where's Papa and the Anderson Tapes, two not uh, unimportant films. Uh, Cooley High, Car Wash. He also has a part in How to Beat the High Cost of Living, a film I have not seen called The Census Taker from 84. Uh, and then he is a highlight God bless Larry Cohen. We love Larry Cohen. We're going to get to him many, many times throughout the course of this show. Garrett Morris is having a ball. He is one. I mean, I I won't say the MVP, but a scene stealer as a uh, cookie tycoon in the stuff. Uh, So, you know, it had to go to an indie horror comedy for him to get a chance to shine. But it's there. You watch the stuff and tell me Garrett Morris is not having a good time. Um I don't remember his performance in Critical Condition, the Richard Pryor hospital comedy, uh, nor his work in The Underachievers. So that's his 80s output for Garrett Morris. Um, but I think he'll be forever immortalized for that sketch in which it's probably a bit insensitive now, but when he's doing the, the voiceover for the people who are hard of hearing. There's that one. There's, I, I mean, Chico Escuela was certainly one of the uh, trademark early See, characters. I don't remember that. I don't, yeah. Oh, I do. That one I don't remember much. And I will say this, like 
the thing to take from what Garrett did on SNL was he was the first guy to be cast on that show who then immediately felt like I'm in the wrong place. They don't know what to do with me and fought his ass off to define his space on that show. And over and over, the history of SNL is written by people who refused to be side sidelined or who were desperate to get noticed or who wanted to break out or just had a hunger. And I'm blown away by how he persevered and the space he did make for himself there, considering what what it seemed like it was for him backstage. An amazing guy. Dig back through uh, early SNL episodes. I think you will be pleasantly surprised by how brilliant Garrett Morris is. Uh, Marvel nuts will perhaps recognize Garrett Morris because he was a cab driver in the first Ant-Man movie. Which brings us to the first deserter. Drew thought it should be a graduate. I said, nope, deserter. Chevy Chase. Uh, love him, hate him, in the middle him. Uh, there's no doubt that when Saturday Night Live was in its infancy, he was one of the biggest topics of conversation, one of the biggest breakouts. Uh, obviously, other people got ink, uh, but he was probably the most talked about, at least through the first year, the first season, and then into the season two, because he left only after the first season to go and make movies. And on one hand, you think, oh, that's not really a team player. That's kind of a dick move. And on the other hand, like some of his really early films were very, very successful. I think it broke the show. And I think it broke the show, but it also defined the show. I think that when Chevy made the decision that he was, and he did this before Hollywood ever came knocking, but when he made the decision that the Chevy Chase show was more important than Saturday Night Live, that kind of set a tone. And I think the moment he became a giant star with I'm Chevy Chase and you're not, it started that. It started that ball rolling. And yeah, Foul Play, I really, really like. I think Foul Play is terrific. He did two uh, anthology comedies that uh, fans will know called The Groove Tube in 1974 and then Tunnel Vision in 1976. His breakout film, in which he actually got a Golden Globe nomination, was Foul Play. And that's directly because of... At they looked at him, they went, SNL, look at that guy, this is our star, and then foul play happens. All right, well, Drew, break break this down for me. Did he break a contract, or did he just not sign a second contract? No, they, contract? Didn't, they didn't have to come back, and he certainly was allowed to go, and he you know, negotiated it with Lauren, and he talked it over, and part of it was that he was in a marriage that was very difficult, and that he wanted to be on the West Coast, where he could be with his wife, and... She wanted to be on the West Coast, and he had to work on the East Coast for a certain part of the year if he was going to do SNL. So that factored into it. But it was also, I think, that he very quickly wanted to be the star of the show and wanted it to be Chevy Chase at the center. And I don't fault him for that. Like, that's what everybody was telling him yeah, at that moment. No, no, the, that's the thing. It's like I, I certainly ne neither you nor I want to just – vilify the man people can obviously read up on chevy chase both in both behind in front of and behind the camera and and decide for themselves if they like him i like and dislike chevy chase it's impossible to kind of equate the two keep this in mind he was hired as a writer on snl he got onto the show as a performer because he really pushed he wanted that gig so it's not even like he backstabbed lauren after lauren tried to make him a big star no he like, like he had to kind of wheedle his way on the air. There, that wasn't a guarantee in the first place. So I feel like Chevy knew what he wanted from day one. And his movie star career, he chased it. Yeah, hard. Here's something our listeners want to know. When he left of the seven originals, was it more, more good riddance, fuck you, or 
you traitor, you bailed on us when we needed Oh, you. I know there's a lot of anger. And that is part of what led to uh, the famous feud that happened when he came back to host the show and he and Bill Murray ended up fist fighting was there was such simmering resentment over Chevy coming back in and being like, look, I'm Chevy Chase, the movie star. And here you guys are still doing that cute TV show we used to do together. And I think there was some of that. I, I definitely think there was some simmering. F- Everything. Yeah. Everything, every anecdote, every story, well, not every, but almost everything I ever hear about Chevy Chase, my my brain just goes, man, take everything that makes him him and add like a large portion of simple humility and Chevy Chase would be a saint. He just has no humility. He has none. He has no grace for 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 other other performers. He has no generosity to other performers. It's you were right. It's got to be all him and you kind of can tell because his some of his best movies are when he's the star. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's uh, it's weird, but it's it's understandable why he popped off the screen the way he did, because he's a really good looking guy, but looks like the Mad Magazine caricature of the good looking guy. Yeah, like I think a lot of younger people might not realize or remember that. Back in the day, Chevy Chase was like uh, like a Ryan Reynolds. Oh, yeah, he was a movie like, star. He, he was very, very handsome, very funny, very charming, could also do slapstick, could also break the fourth wall. Very much like Ryan Reynolds, at the, but Ryan Reynolds seems to be a fucking mensch, seems to be a nice guy. <laughs> Chevy, Chevy Chase does not. Um, all right, so let's run through these because we've covered them. But other than foul play, uh, he, he uh, in 80, he did Caddyshack, Seems Like Old Times, Oh Heavenly Dog. Yeah. Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah, I love, love, love. Seems like old times, and he is a large part. Goldie Hawn, Charles Grodin, Neil Simon, lots of good people in that movie. Oh, Heavenly Dog, even as a failed kids film, it's retro, it's reprehensible, it's atrocious. And Caddyshack, you know, it's a staple. It's Stairway to Heaven in comedy movie form. No, that's not a bad comparison. It's, it is, it's a staple. There's a reason it is what it is, so. Then 81, boy, did he not have a good 1981. Modern Problems Under the Rainbow. Drew, if you had to watch one of those movies five times without getting up, what would it be? Modern Problems or Under the Rainbow? Oh, uh, I guess. Which one's shorter? Oh, Under the Rainbow. Okay, Under the Rainbow. Here we go. I mean, God, there's no winning that. (laughs) So then we move from 1983, a a half-and-half story, deal of the century, and... National Lampoon's Vacation. Yep, which uh, if you, that for me is the gold standard. That's my favorite Chevy movie. Yeah, okay. Now, it's just funny how you can kind of, if you look at these filmographies in order, it's funny how you can see managers, agents, and producers kind of poking the divining rod into the ground and going under the rainbow. Oh, nothing there. Uh, Seems like old times. Oh, a little bit there. Modern problems. Oh, deal of the century. Oh, nothing there. Vacation. Geyser, we have a hit. You know, you can just see it. We just have to find the right vehicle. It could, you know, and and that's why there. It's fun to trash those bad movies, but that's like sometimes the process a person goes through to find something they're good at. And then he follows Vacation with Fletch, Spies Like Us, European Vacation, and a small bit in Sesame Street Presents Bottle of That Bird in 1986, Three Amigos. In 1988, The Couch Trip, Funny Farm, Caddyshack Two. And in 1989, Fletch Lives and Christmas Vacation. You could not be, you couldn't be a movie fan in the 80s, love him or hate him, and you could not escape Chevy Chase. Well, and Chase. He, worked, he worked nonstop 
And he was absolutely a big name all the way through the 80s. There's guys who started the 80s at one level and ended it at a different. There's guys, Chevy was a star in 1980. He was a star in 1989. He, he definitely was somebody who that entire decade, they kept trying and they kept trying. Yeah, when it hit, it hit. Like they're the ones that I love of those are great. Inconsistent, but certainly not a shitty track record throughout the 80s. A couple of turkeys, but and even in the ones I don't like, there's still moments. There's still moments here and there. And I rarely feel like what goes off the rails completely is him. I I feel like Chevy shows up, does his thing, and is pretty consistently Chevy. But the but he also won't do anything additional to lift the film. The film has to be great around him if it's going to be a great movie. And what I like about Chevy Chase's career is that you can put a signpost at 1990 and say before and after, because you could argue that the films we've already covered on Chevy Chase might be good, might be crap. It's up to you to decide. But boy, did things get worse after 1990. Uh, And I'm talking like nothing but trouble. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, uh, Cops and Robertsons, Man of the House, Vegas Vacation, Snow Day, Dirty Work. It's like he found a genie in 1979 and he wished for 10 years of being a movie star (laughs) and then it ran the fuck out in 1989. Just done. And I I think it kind of speaks to what you said is that he was just never interested in being any – I'll be caught pop up for three scenes and mug as the goofy mailman and vanish. Whereas somebody like a Bill Murray was much more interested in evolving. I will still be funny. I will still be weird, but I can also be serious, romantic, sweet, bittersweet, touching, you know, and could you imagine like a Chevy chase in something like, um, lost in translation? I know I've known John Carpenter long enough and well enough that he has told me stories about, every film and every project and things that he will never tell in interviews. And he will not discuss memoirs of an invisible man that says it all to me. Let us now move on to, in many ways, the, uh, one of the, well, maybe the MVP of the first season. Dan Aykroyd was the guy who made me laugh the most as a kid. I don't know why, but young skinny Dan Aykroyd with that motor mouth and that cadence, that, that rapid fire, uh, staccato delivery makes me laugh. Just thinking about it, just even something as silly as the Bassomatic, it's his presentation. They all, all of these actors that we're talking about have talent, you know, squared ridiculous talent, but, uh, I, I really appreciate Dan Aykroyd's very specific talents, his, his parroting, his mimicking, his, um, his used car salesman, his uh, hayseed, his hick, you know, I, I just loved Dan Aykroyd and he's had a really weird career. Uh, he was never really a movie star. Really? Was he? No, not, not, in the, not in the sense that I think you bank on Dan Aykroyd. I think Dan Aykroyd drove a lot of big movie star projects in terms of putting them together and things. But I, I think Dan was happy being what Dan was, which was this big web toed mutant who 100% just would do whatever the hell he was interested in. And you look at his career, there's very little calculation. I don't get the sense. There's the same energy around him that there is around Chevy, where you talked about managers and agents trying to figure it out. And I certainly see them plug him into stuff over the 80s. But I also get a sense that Dan had a real big no button that he wasn't afraid to push, where he didn't do a lot of stuff that he didn't think was funny. And Dan's sense of humor, not necessarily everybody's sense of humor. Also... I don't know, obviously, Dan Aykroyd personally, but he seems the kind of guy who's probably been fairly, fairly good with his money and just likes being a character yeah, actor. I think he's happy to be who he is. 
I'll do three days in your kid's movie. Fine. You know, like he's happy being a silly. He's got a warmth to him that a Chevy Chase doesn't. And that Dan Aykroyd is a legitimate, not only a legitimate writer in his own right, but a great actor. Like, think like my girl. Think uh, Driving Miss Daisy. He's doing some good acting in those I movies. I have boundless respect for Dan. And I, like, in person, I've always found him a little prickly and a little bit bristly. And I actually like that. I like the fact that Dan strikes me as really intelligent and a guy who probably has heard it all 40 times. Uh, there's very little you can say to him about his career that he hasn't heard at this point. So I'm fascinated by him. I'm fascinated by the fact that he feels uncompromised, even now. Like, who else who else would live the life he has the way he has with the UFO stuff and the ghost stuff and the I'm going to go make crystal skull vodka and I'm going to do and I'm going to build a blues chain of restaurants that is a basically a standing city by city memorial to my dead buddy who I miss desperately every day for 40 years out loud. Like the loss of Ackroyd is such a defining or the loss of Belushi is such a defining thing to Ackroyd and is still such a big part of his life. Even though he doesn't say his name all the time, you cannot look at House of Blues and not see the missing piece that Dan had. And I find it really kind of lovely in a way that there is an ongoing thing that exists that still in some little way keeps those blues brothers alive. Um, and I'm really happy that some of the early work that he did, they got the blues brothers, right? That that movie exists as a record of those two guys and that energy and that love, because can you imagine if he didn't have that at the very least? Here's, here's a question though. Without John Belushi, what trajectory would Dan Aykroyd's career have taken? Would he have been a Chevy Chase? Would he have been a Bill Murray? No, I still think he would have been a a weirder character. Like, I, I think of him the way I think of um, Jordan Peele. When you look at Jordan Peele as an actor on Key and Peele, so much of what I think he finds is funny is grotesque or looking a little weird or wearing crazy character makeup or playing really deranged characters who kind of are a little dangerous or scary. There's Jordan Peele isn't afraid of that horror vibe at the edge of comedy. I think Dan occupies some of that space. I think a lot of Dan's early characters, I wouldn't want to be alone in a room with. And I like that. I find that fascinating. Like, I think there's a real interesting vibe to early Dan Aykroyd that is a little scary at times and yet could also be very childlike at times. And he just had range. And we've talked about, you know, Chevy and, and what Chevy's strengths are. And it's mainly playing Chevy Chase. That's not Aykroyd. Aykroyd's one of those guys who you never quite know what you're going to get each time out. And that's part of the joy of it is he's constantly inventing. And I still feel like I could get new colors out of Dan as an actor if I worked with him as a filmmaker. That's exciting to see a guy who this many years down the road... I, I still don't think I've got a total picture of Dan, nor do I think he'll ever give us one. Uh, he's just a, a, a likable, versatile character actor. And throughout the 80s, I think uh, filmmakers realized not exactly a leading man, but he was a good person to do in a buddy comedy with pair him up with one person, one funny person. And that could be better. Uh, uh, but more often than not, ensemble character actor. Uh, we, we, we did mention in a bonus episode many years back, 1941. I love his work in 1941. It just that, that again, that belligerent sergeant delivery. Love it. Love it. The Blues Brothers. Epic. Beautiful. Uh, Neighbors, 1981. We've covered extensively. Uh, 
it came from Hollywood. Uh, no, you know, no disrespect to Mr. Aykroyd, but of the live action people in that movie, he might be the least effective. Not real funny. Um, his first leading role as Dr. Clifford Skidrow in Dr. Detroit. Well, 83 was a big year for him because I, I, I think of all three of these movies that I feel like that was a flashpoint for Dan on film to have Dr. Detroit and Trading Places and that Twilight Zone opener in one year really sent a message that he had moved on. He was no longer SNL. Even though I don't love Dr. Detroit, I love that it was a lead for him and that he was clearly stepping forward. And I I felt like the, the scary thing would have been that John's death could have broken Dan. It could have ended Dan the same way it ended John to some degree based on just not Hollywood, but based on how it affected him. Like, I think it's really remarkable that he went on to make Ghostbusters something that clearly he wanted John to be part of or that he carried on working and that he so quickly found a voice that was different. One thing that Dan Aykroyd had that some of these other guys didn't have I think he had a better eye for screenplays. And and here's the thing. He got real lucky by being the guy they needed opposite Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. That was just the casting lottery because that could have been a, could have been Chevy Chase, could have been Bill Murray. But it was Dan Aykroyd who got that role. Trading Places is a huge hit, thanks in large part to the city of Philadelphia, but mainly uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, so now Dan Aykroyd has the cachet of trading places under his belt and that allows him to get Ghostbusters help, you know, with, with that under him trading play that made Ghostbusters that much easier to get produced. Uh, in 84, he also had a small odd role in Temple of Doom and a film called Nothing Lasts Forever. Uh, in 1985, he popped up briefly in Into the Night for John Landis. Love him in that. Yeah. And also Spies Like Us, in which he co-stars with Chevy Chase. Uh, so pr- clearly there's no bad blood there uh, between Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, th- then, he, then, like he did, oh, this is funny. I just chanced on this. Like he did many years earlier in which he was fortunate, not lucky. He's a talented actor. Fortunate enough to get into the stratosphere of Eddie Murphy in 1987, he was smart enough to get in the stratosphere of Tom Hanks and Dragnet a silly, silly uh, adaptation of the uh, classic television show. Big hit. The chemistry that he has with Tom Hanks is a big part of that film. But really, the thing that they sold us in 1987 was Aykroyd. That more than, I think, any movie. They did. You're right. His his Joe Friday impersonation. Oh, God. They leaned on the the way he and his love of the original, his which totally makes sense because Dan has that strange sort of Canadian clip thing going on. So him leaning right into Joe Friday was a really good fit. It's such a perfect combination of, oh, of course you cast him to play that guy. I didn't even watch Dragnet as a kid, but the moment they started showing clips of Joe Friday and then put the Dan Aykroyd next to it, it was one of those, oh, well, I guess that makes perfect sense. That seems absolutely the right guy. So that was one of the moments that it really did lean into Dan Aykroyd movie star in a in a rare way. It's it's not it was not common that he was the center of what they pushed. Great outdoors. 
great outdoors. I like John Candy in that one with him. And, you know, it's John Hughes. It's one of those John Hughes scripts where I feel like he wrote 17 scripts a month. He would shoot two of them a year and then the rest went in a drawer. And if you wanted to make one, you could. Right. Like, oh, I mean, how is this not a how is this not National Lampoon's uh, log cabin vacation? I mean, it is a Griswold movie, right? That's very much what it feels like. And I I think he was that that was not uncommon for him. Also, quick footnote to Dragnet. First movie, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks were the first two people on the cover of the very first premiere magazine. Okay, uh, and then aside from the small, silly uh, uh, cameo or... As Mrs. Esther House in Caddyshack 2. People tried twice to, to make him a lead actor again. They're like, all right, after Ghostbusters, fine, he's a lead. Couch Trip, we'll get to in a couple episodes. My stepmother was an alien. Ugh. After that... Nothing would make him a lead again. And I think, and I mean this with respect, that's a good thing. Don't think his talents are in anchoring a movie on his own. Uh, Drew, any thoughts on My Stepmother is an Alien? Uh, Just that Richard Benjamin's uh, 80s is one of those weird death marches where, man, does it start well and boy, does it end badly. Because we're right now, we're still in the golden era of like Richard Benjamin could be the next something, you know, it's like he was Rob Reiner at the beginning of the 80s. He is not Rob Reiner at the end of the 80s. And then in 89, of course, Ghostbusters 2 and a fantastic supporting performance in Driving Miss Daisy, which would lead to other more dramatic roles like in Chaplin and My Girl. And, you know, uh, he's just, you know, a, a reliable, if you want him to be a, a homey and likable uh, stepdad, there you go. Uh, if you want him to be like uh, the wacky exterminator who comes in and does six jokes and leaves, there you go. Dan Aykroyd, love him. Love Dan Aykroyd. Which, of course, leads us logically to the late, great John Belushi. Drew, when I say John Belushi SNL, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, the very first thing for me is Samurai. That was the very first. It's I remember Samurai first, and I think it was actually not even seeing him on the show. It was seeing him in a comic book that they dropped him into because Marvel loved him. They loved sticking him in the background of stuff. The Samurai was a huge hit with them for some reason. Yeah, uh, in 78... 78- he had uh, appeared in two films, one called Going South, which is quite good, and one called Animal House, which is also quite good. And then in 1971, he starred opposite Talia Shire in Old Boyfriends, which is uh, not very good. And then, of course, he co-starred in 1941, although he didn't really play opposite anyone in that movie, really. <laughs> He's mostly in an airplane the whole movie. That was certainly, that was the uh, the second big push that, that happened for Belushi as far as my awareness of him animal house I, I was a little too young for i was eight when the film came out um so animal house was something my parents talked about and that i certainly knew existed but it didn't register something i wanted to see it was 1941 because it was from spielberg that i totally was it was totally on my radar and of course i wanted to see it and i i didn't get it 1941 missed me in the theater like i i have a lot of problems with the movie and i didn't get it all felt loud and frantic and annoying more than anything so for me it all started with the television show as i started to watch the tv show and blues brothers and then of course beyond uh, 1980 he did two more films in 1981 uh he did continental divide and then neighbors which was his final film and we covered both of those back in 81. Neither are great, but they're both not great for very different reasons. But when it comes to John Belushi, 
you know, look at it like a ranking. This man ga- gave us some great, great stuff in the Blues Brothers and Animal House. Then you go down a level, and in my opinion, going south in 1941, both have some good stuff there. Then you got, you know, some stuff where people didn't know what to do with him, like Old Boyfriends, Continental Divide, and Neighbors. And he, the guy deserved more than seven movies. Uh, just a horrible tragedy that he died so young. But one thing I'll give to SNL fans, like younger ones, they'll go back and watch older ones. I don't know if old people will necessarily watch the newer episodes, but it seems that younger SNL fans will go back and watch older episodes. So I'm watching it happen right now because Toshi's been bitten by the bug and he has discovered Saturday Night Live. And so we have it all. I have all of SNL. So he is working his way through everything and watching the way he's watching it and watching the way he's digesting stuff. He already has guys from all the different eras that he loves because of different movies. So for him now, it's not that he discovered any one era of SNL first. He views it as the show all those people came from. And now he's like an anthropologist going into it and just saying, okay, well, I really like this. So I want to go see this. Like a reverse Avengers universe. Like it was the Avengers and then they all, all splintered off into their own uh, careers. Yeah. He's a Wings fan who's just, he, what, McCartney was in a band? There was a band before that? Oh, that poor, uh, poor child. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> John Belushi, uh, we miss you, we love you, and uh, thank you for the uh, the few but excellent, great films. Drew, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Real quick, though, uh, to tie everything in this entire episode to Joy of Sex, the movie that evidently touched every pair of hands that existed in the early 80s, when John Belushi died, uh, one of the scripts that he had with him was The Joy of Sex, which he called a friend to talk about, and he was so depressed about what they wanted him to do, at one point he was weeping, saying, they're going to have me in a diaper. I'm going to be a fucking baby. Is this what my career is? So that like that was one of those projects that went through every pair of hands and every version of it, but that early anthology version, which I've never found and I've never read, was evidently a toxic, terrible screenplay. Yeah, we'll get to Joy of Sex very soon. And there's a lot uh, the to say that the backstory behind it is more interesting than the film itself would be a massive understatement. Yeah, yeah. Drew, uh, we've covered the entire season one cast, but we've left one season one lead cast member out. Who who did we not mention? Uh, George Coe. It's easy It's easy to look back, and you know a lot more about this than I do, so I'll just offer my opinion and then let you opine. To me, George Coe seemed like a character actor where they said, we got a lot of these un- unproven, young, goofy people. We need someone, a, a an older white man who can play the dad or the granddad or the senator or the accountant or the straight man or the butt of the joke. And it seems like that was supposed to be his role Having not seen season one for several years, I can't comment on his uh, uh, skill against these weird young uh, comedians, but he was not invited back for season two. So maybe you can illuminate more about George Coe. Well, I, I think you're I think you're right. I think, like I was saying earlier, Lauren very much wanted a utility shed full of the right tool for the right job. So George Coe was a guy who looked like the establishment. He was the face that all of the rest of the not ready for primetime players were bouncing off of. He was the norm that they were violating. And, you know, he he certainly he had a long career before SNL. 
and I think was a really interesting character actor. I love his work since, and I think he's continued to be a guy who everybody in the business has worked with probably <laughs> at some point. The, the ultimate irony of George Coe is that we talked about some great comedians like Lorraine Newman and Jane Curtin, who didn't have much of a film career for the 10 years after Saturday Night Live. But George Coe, who is almost never mentioned except by true SNL experts, his filmography for the 80s is as a character actor, as a bit player even, The First Deadly Sin, Bustin' Loose, The Amateur, The Entity, The House of God, Drew, Mickey and Maud, Remo Williams, Head Office, Blind Date, Best Seller, and Cousins. Dude worked. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, has, and has seriously, has always been a consistently solid and funny character actor. I think he's a but guy I would who, love to have been like, all right, so when season two, maybe you have some insight on this. They come back for season two. Everybody's there except Chevy who quit and a new person who we'll get to in a second. And, oh, by the way, George Coe is gone. So Dan Aykroyd looks to John Belushi. Dan, uh, Jane Curtin looks to Garrett Morris. Do they care? Are they upset? Are they, do they want George Coe back? Is there any kind of, like, what's the story there? No, and he said in the past that he didn't really click with with what was going on, that he came in and viewed it as a job. Off the air, Bobby used a really strong word here. There is a mythology to the early SNL that is part of the what makes it so appealing and interesting to me. And George Coe seemed very aware while it was happening that that mythology was being written without him being part of it. And I don't think he minded. I don't think that's the world that he was in. They were living this rock star trip. By the time they did the live New Orleans show where the SNL cast went to New Orleans and they were greeted in the streets like golden gods. And it was a riot, basically, from the moment they got to the airport. That wasn't his scene. That's not what he was as an actor. And I don't think that's ever what he wanted. I wonder if he got drunk at that event. Um, well, that's and so like I think he did not mind not being part of that world. I think he was ready to just be a working actor and do his thing. And I want to give special a special shout out to my favorite George Coe performance. And I think it is one of the great animated voice performances of the last decade. Uh, he was Woodhouse on Archer. Uh, Archer's long-suffering heroin addicted butler manservant. That was George. That Woodhouse was. Yeah, that's George oh. Coe. It, it was a absolutely spectacular performance. I, why would I have never looked that up? And even if I did see it on the screen, it might not have clicked that they, George Coe from SNL. Uh, yeah, Woodhouse was great. He passed away recently. Yep. And and so they they I and I think they knew Woodhouse was Coe and vice versa. So when he went, the character went. Oh, that's so interesting. I did not know that, that. I didn't realize. That's so funny. All right. Well, yeah. Uh, rest in peace and due respect to George Coe, who might not have been like the breakout uh, com comedy uh, star from SNL, but certainly uh, went on to a fine career. So there you go. And we'll close this weird SNL uh, episode with a person who came on in season two. Chevy was gone. It was, I assume, I, I don't remember because I was way too young. I assume it was the kind of thing that made tabloids, that made uh, the, 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 new, the talk shows that, oh my God, Chevy is leaving. That's a big thing, big to do. Who's going to replace him? Drew, who did they bring in to replace their missing star? Well, there was a guy that had been circling the cast the first time around. And uh, by all standards, probably should have been on that first cast. Um, he had been part of Lemmings. He had been part of the National Lampoon world and was well known to the writers and everybody working on the show. 
It almost felt inevitable that when Chevy was out the door, Bill Murray would be the guy that came in to replace him. Now, Drew, is it would it be safe to say that prior to Tom Hanks, that but our very specific segment of this generation, like say the people born from like sixty five to seventy two ish, Bill Murray was your god growing up. You wanted him to be your big brother, your best friend, your neighbor, your boyfriend, whatever you're, you wanted him to be your, near you. You wanted to hang out with Bill Murray. Yeah, it's impossible to overstate. I, I love Bill Murray. It's hardwired into me. It is genetic. I love Bill Murray. And I think our generation imprinted on him so hard. And I have a theory why. Chevy wanted to be a star from the moment he hit SNL. Bill showed up like a guy who didn't give a shit if you got it or not. And and it's like the great position to be in where if I flip out and I bail, the next guy who comes in and does a good job and just is a team player and just is a pro and people like him, you look 10 times better by just being a pro. <laughs> Bill, Bill, didn't, Bill didn't care if you got the joke. Bill knew it was funny. Bill was the guy who walked into the room and immediately the gravity shifted. And it's remarkable the career he's had wait wait before we get into his movies i think our listeners would like to know and and me if there's any if you can give any more insight into the um animosity between bill murray and chevy chase it's understandable bill bill came in and bill very quickly found his place in that cast and without having to dominate anybody without having to take anybody else's focus. So much of what was great about Bill was that he clearly loved other comic performers and looked forward to getting in there and playing with them. When you watch the nerd sketches and it's him and Gilda Radner together, holy God, does Bill love her. And there's so much affection in he's listening to her. He's having so much fun waiting for her. He's delighted by her. He's delighted by the rest of the cast around him. Bill really is a guy. It's impossible to say in the, you know without being on a set. But if you had to take a bet and said, Scott, name one actor who's probably on a on a good, productive, smooth running set is a joy to work with. I'd bet money that Bill Murray is one of them. Well, just watching there, certainly he was in his element and knew it. And I think there's a moment where you see him start to stretch his legs. And that whole cast around him is running at a very high level. And Saturn Live was really firing at, on all cylinders. And then Chevy came back to host. And when Chevy came back to host, very quickly, the gravity shifted back. What, what season that was off the top of your head? Uh, I think it's season three. So it was just long enough for Bill to have established himself. It was not. Yeah, it wasn't like it was six years later and everyone hugs and says, oh, who cares? We're all successful. No, it was still kind of top yeah, this raw. Would, this <laughs> would have been early enough that, yeah, it was still pre-Caddyshack. And when Chevy came back, they immediately the gravity shifted back and it was we've got to make Chevy happy. Everything's about Chevy this week. They wrote. Bill basically out of the show. Bill had two sketches and in one of them had like a line and was not happy about it. And by all accounts, that week just wasn't feeling it. it was like, this is really, we're all going to kiss his ass now that he's back. And we're not going to, we're going to pretend that you guys haven't been saying shit for a year while, <laughs> while he was gone. Okay, fine. And I think it was during, a, uh, during one of the dress rehearsals that Bill just wasn't had no energy in a sketch, wasn't feeling his one line. And when he threw it away, Chevy made a comment to him about, you know, maybe if you were better, you'd be in more sketches this week. 
And that just started it. And you would say, what, this is around 79? Yeah. And it escalated until they actually got almost ready to go on the air. And the the back and forth between them was evidently just vicious. It ended with Bill making a crack about Chevy's wife and how he needed to go back to the West Coast to fuck her because he heard she needed it. And then Chevy made a crack about the moon landing taking place on Bill's face because of Bill's terrible acne. And it got physical. And it really wasn't until Caddyshack where they were put in the same space again. And part of what I've always loved in that movie is that feeling that in that room, nobody knew if they were even going to get through that night shoot. It was like the last time these guys saw each other, they really wanted to kill one another. Right. And in case people don't remember, Caddy uh, in Caddyshack, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase only share one scene. But it's great. And part of what makes it great is that that weird, edgy energy and the fact that they didn't really know where they were going as they started blocking the scene out. And all the props were new to both of them. And so there's a sense in that scene that they're feeling each other out comically and trying to figure out, can I be funny with this person who I was so angry at? And I love the weird energy. And I think in the end, they're really funny in that scene together. And by all accounts, got past it. Like that animosity dissolved finally. It's a it's a really fascinating thing to see two egos as big as that. And ego is not a necessarily bad word, just egos. They're huge, huge people and huge personalities. And see the way they, they had to bristle at one another. It's easy for people on the outside for us to look and go, oh, ego equals arrogant, blah, blah, blah. But hey, if you're on a television show and you don't have an ego and you don't have confidence and you don't have that hunger to to get a sitcom, to get a script, to get a, an agent or a big deal, like then you'll probably be left behind. You have to be hungry. Uh, I, I obviously can't speak to anybody who is vicious or cutthroat or whatever. Uh, I can only really talk about their work because that's all I know. So Bill Murray turned out to be, of course, a darling on te- on the big screen. Uh, we saw him in 79's Meatballs. Uh, in 80, he was busy. He did a forgotten anthology film called Lo- Loose Shoes. He did he played Hunter S. Thompson in Where the Buffalo Roam. And then, of course, he was also in Caddyshack. He had a big hit in Stripes, which uh, I don't know if a military comedy with someone else in the lead might have been as big of a hit. But that's the fact Jack became a very popular catchphrase uh, throughout the early 80s. Well, and it was the first time him going back to a collaborator. And I think it's something that we see over and over when he's comfortable, he's at his best. So clearly he and Ivan Reitman had that good relationship. Yeah. And I think he and Harold Ramis have this. So it's you'll see that with Bill. And then you also see moments where those things end and then they just never happen again for whatever reason. And what's interesting is uh, Stripes, after a hit like that, uh, I I always likened it to Goldie Hawn's in Private Benjamin. You would think that his next two or three films would immediately be starring roles. But his next job after Stripes was a supporting role in Tootsie. And to me, that says a lot about Bill Murray in that he probably read this script and said, I'll play the guy who says, how do you feel about Cleveland if I can be in this movie? <laughs> and then he took a year off. Like, I love that Tootsie was Tootsie was 81 and he technically he wasn't working until 83. I guarantee you I'm going to pick going to read your mind. Just the idea of Bill Murray as part of like a normal movie ensemble in which he's bickering and bantering with the likes of uh, Jessica Lange and, 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 and uh, Dustin Hoffman. It was just a, oh, he's not the center of attention. He's not the big star. He's just funny as shit. 
in this, you know, four, five, six scenes that he has in It also felt like because Tootsie was a movie that I went to go see with my whole family. And that was a movie my grandmother went to see with us and my parents loved it. And Bill Murray being in it felt like that was my reward for having gone to see that movie. I love Tootsie. I adore the movie. But it really did feel like that was for me. It looks like they shot it at Bill Murray's apartment. That's how I imagined Bill Murray really was at that point. Like, it was the perfect shambling sort of... He didn't live like a a slob. That apartment's not terrible. It's just you get the sense that that's the shaggy, normal... Bill Murray. And I love that. That was that was very appealing to see at that point. Yeah. Another another late career highlight for Bill Murray is Zombieland. And I think a lot of his younger fans will point to that as like the moment where they're like, oh, he's not just this or he's not just that. That uh, or, of course, his his work with Wes Anderson is great. But uh, Tootsie is where I realized, you know, you, all of these uh, comedic stars, you have moments where you're like, oh, here's where they're about to try something different. And and t- a lot of people will point to Razor's Edge as the real time he tried something different. But uh, I think Tootsie was a real step forward for him. Um, and then and then in, in 1984, he did The Forgotten, Nothing Lasts Forever, a DC, uh, uh, an animated film called BC Rock, uh, the aforementioned Razor's Edge, which was a, a, a pet project of his. Uh, Drew, we've covered Ghostbusters extensively. Why don't you... Uh, go a little bit on Razor's Edge. Why did, why did he want to make that? You can't overstate how important where the Buffalo Rome was for him because it was a moment where he realized he wanted to act. He didn't want to just be a movie star. He wanted to act. He wanted to give himself over to characters. He wanted to vanish into movies. He wanted to be able to do that. And I think he was wrestling with part of the reason he took that time off and part of the reason Tootsie happened was specifically, I don't want to be the star of a film. I want to be in movies. So you've made me realize something. Uh, what what year do I always say is the worst movie year of the decade? Eighty three. And what uh, it's is the, the Christmas only- without a Santa Claus? Yeah, it's the year without a Bill Murray. <laughs> and I feel like the Razor's Edge was definitely him saying, "I I have a broader palette than you think I do. I want more than this." And so he he was willing to leverage his stardom. I'll do this if you let me do this. I'll make this if you'll give me this. And so Bill was, from the very beginning, I think, very aware of the wrong way to be Bill Murray. And it's one of the reasons that we never got the run of movies like Critical Condition and Couch Trip, where they were just jamming him into anything. Bill takes control at a certain point and never lets go of it again. From 86 on, Little Shop of Horrors, Scrooged, Ghostbusters 2, Quick Change. Oh, it's 90, my bad. So, yeah, his 80s were uh, Little Shop of Horrors, a quick cameo, and she's having a baby, Scrooged, and Ghostbusters 2, which I'm not a fan of, but he is funny in it. And Scrooged is, you know, Scrooged is a case where it was 100%. He put all of those elements together. Michael O'Donoghue, Mitch Glazer, uh, all of that, and a lot of the casting is very much driven by Bill and what Bill wanted. I love that movie. I wouldn't probably wouldn't call it the best uh, adaptation of Dickens or the finest uh, or the most literal. But boy, is it fun, funny, good effects. Richard Donner, my Richard Donner's last great film, I think. I will argue it's got my favorite Scrooge transformation. My favorite moment where Scrooge realizes 
just how good he can be and how good it's going to and and seeing the effect kick in. Oh man, and it's perfect. It is so perfect. He is so his entire career to that point has been like the sardonic older brother who loves you but would never show it. That's Bill Murray. And then at the end of Scrooge, when he is smiling and giddy, you're, the fans of him till that point are almost in tears like, holy shit. One of my very favorite things about working in a theater in that era was standing in the back of the theater during the closing credits of Scrooge and watching Bill Murray play with the crowd. Because the whole conceit of the closing credits is he's singing, he's talking to the crowd, he's seeing them, he's pointing at people in the crowd. And it worked every time. Every single time he would point at somebody in the audience, they would laugh and the people around them would laugh as if he was doing it to really them. It was so, and it's because that love was so genuine that people have for him and that affection and that movie kind of puts you in that place right at the end. So I loved sitting in the back of the standing in the very, very back and just watching every single time the crowd not getting up, not leaving, staying there until Bill was done playing. And it always worked. Uh, as far as Christmas comedies go, where would you play Scrooge? Top it's, five? It, top five. It's right up there for me. I, it's a holiday every year for me. Uh, Elf Christmas Story, Christmas Vacation, and and definitely Scrooge is up there. Uh, well, there we go. We, this is what we're going to call um, SNL Movies Phase 1. Because in, in the future, we're going to come back and discuss... Uh, Subsequent seasons, we want to talk about the early films of your Billy Crystal, your Eddie Murphy, your Tim Kazarinski, Joe Piscopo. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's listening to this because you are not only a listener, but you are a patron. And if you are supporting us with a few dollars a month, that means you have probably tweeted out to people that you like the show there to indicate that you're a smart investor and you don't throw your money down a, a sewer pit and good on you. And yeah, this is, this is one of those topics, uh, the moment it was suggested, we realized there's really no easy way to get our, get our hands around it. And so I I think breaking it into this is very uh, simple, and I look forward to coming back to it. And uh, I would love to hear from you guys who your favorites of this early group were and what your favorite moments from them, both on the small and the big screens, were. Yeah.